welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And we are covering a novella. We have Mm -hmm. one of Christie's rare novellas to cover again. Always a treat. Catherine, what are we discussing? We are discussing Dead Man's Mirror. Kemper, what is the publication history? Well, Dead Man's Mirror, similar to the last of these novellas that we covered, Murder in the Muse, was originally a short story that was subsequently expanded. So the true initial publication of Dead Man's Mirror was as the short story The Second Gong, which was published in Ladies Home Journal in June 1932 in the U.S., and then just one month later in the U.K. in The Strand... And that short story, because it was very soon thereafter expanded into Dead Man's Mirror, does not show up in book form until our grab bag of latter day problem at Palenza Bay in 1991. So it took a long, long journey from serialization to being collected in book form. But um, as we mentioned, this was, of course, expanded into the novella Dead Man's Mirror, which was collected in Murder in the Muse and Other Stories, first published in the UK by Collins Crime Club, of course, in March 1937, and then in the US under the title Dead Man's Mirror, since, as we mentioned, Muse is not really a word that uh, American audiences would be all that familiar with. So Dead Man's Mirror was the name of the collection in the US, and that was in June of 1937 that the collection appeared on this side of the pond. So that is the rather torturous publication history of this novella. So we should get to our victim, uh, the extravagantly named Sir Gervais Chavanek's Gore. He's an older, egomaniacal baronet. Indeed, we're told that he is, quote unquote, the last of the baronets. Not that there aren't still baronets in England, but, you know, he was a special category, a swashbuckling, adventuring youth. And he's obsessed with his genealogy and the fate of his family name. And uh, he seemingly killed himself in his study after having invited Poirot to his estate. Let's get into some suspects here, because either Sir Gervais killed himself or he didn't, in which case it could have been anyone in the house. And we're happy to report that this is one of Christie's rare locked room mysteries. Mm-hmm. Do not come across these as much as I think one would guess, given that they are such a staple of the golden age genre in general. But it happens every now and then. Hercule Poirot's Christmas, Murder in Mesopotamia, The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding. And this story, there's probably at least one or two others. But in any case, yeah, it's pretty much everyone we meet at this estate. So starting off, we have uh, Gervais's wife, Lady Vanda Chevenix-Gore. And she's pretty daffy. She's very into the occult and spirits. She believes that she is uh, an Egyptian reincarnate. Yeah, no, she's all about the celestial plane. Then we have Ruth Chevenix-Gore, who's their incredibly lovely physically and intelligent and sassy and a little bit hot-headed. She's tough. She's her adopted daughter. This is what Christy writes. She had a well-chiseled nose, slightly aquiline, and a clear, sharp line of jaw. Her black hair swept back from her face into a mass of tight little curls. Her coloring was of carnation clearness and brilliance and owed little to makeup. She was, so Hercule Poirot thought, one of the loveliest girls he had seen. 
My my. I know. And uh, my my say all of the gentlemen surrounding their estate because she has used that to her advantage, apparently, and is somewhat well known for, uh, you know, uh, leading gentlemen on and then wanting to have actually nothing to do with any of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because she does have brains as well as beauty. Christy is very quick to point that out in the very next paragraph, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, so up next, we have Hugo Trent, who is Sir Gervais's uh, nephew, his sister's son. Sir Gervais does not like him all that much. Right. Mostly because he did not like Hugo's father and did not think he was good enough for a Chevenix gore. Yeah. And he was also named after a ne'er-do-well ancestor. And I right. think that also just kind of rubs Sir Gervais the wrong way with his whole genealogical obsession. Yeah. Then we have Snell the butler, who... It's not exactly a suspect, but let's just throw him in there anyway. Up next, we have Susan Cardwell, a pretty redhead down for the weekend. She has exquisite hair, so we're told. We're told more than once. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then we have Colonel Barry, who is a long, long time friend of Vanda and Gervais. And he's a um, very loyal companion to Vanda. He's known her essentially since her societal debut. He even remembers, you know, the flowers that she wore in her hair. Up next, we've got Mr. Oswald Forbes, the family's longtime lawyer. Also an old friend, a bit of a bore. Then we have uh, Godfrey Burroughs, who is Sir Gervais's very good looking, but you know, not quite of their class, private secretary. Everybody sort of looks down upon him despite the fact that he is very attractive. Right. He's like good looking in a cheap way, which mm-hmm. is his, one of my his, favorite descriptions of characters ever. I know. His his black hair is slicked back, you know, and like yeah. there's a certain quality to him that's clearly not of their kind. Then next up we have Miss Lingard, who is Sir Gervais's family biography researcher, and it seems ghostwriter. Like like she's very, much just very clearly a ghostwriter. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's a middle aged professional woman. And then we have um, Captain John Lake, who is Sir Gervais's nice, good looking, incredibly well liked estate agent. We'll talk a little bit more when we get to the end of our summary of Dead Man's Mirror. But the original story of the second gong has almost all of these characters all with different names. <laughs> yeah, every like it's kind of funny like she totally renamed all of them. She renamed all of them. It's really interesting. Um and there is one character here who does not appear in the second gong and um it's very interesting the difference that that brings to the story, but we will get to that after our resolution. So, let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Monsieur Poirot receives a letter from Hambro Close from one Sir Gervais Chevenix Gore, more or less demanding that Poirot be on call for him. Very pretty much like whenever. He's sort of like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to need you at some point in the near-ish future because he needs Poirot to look into something of a family nature that he wants to keep. Possibly fraud. That's sort of implied. Yeah, some sort of fraud that's within the family and he wants to keep it private and he he may need to consult with Poirot. So he just needs to be aware of that and make himself available. And if he should actually require Poirot's services, he'll send a telegram. And of course, Poirot is, is very peeved 
about this. And the first thing that he does is to take out his who's who. We haven't seen that. No, I know. I know. And I loved I loved the little paragraph of it. Yeah. Got to bust out the who's who. Yeah. And Christy actually replicates the paragraph on Sir Gervais Chevenick's core that he's reading in the who's who. And the point is that it's not all that useful. It's giving a lot of statistics, but not a lot of relevant psychological facts, shall we say? Because even though he's peeved by this, he's also intrigued by it. So um, he decides to go to a party. Where does he go, Catherine? Oh, does he ever go to a party, Camper? Because that party is hosted by none other than the Duchess of Life, who we have met before, Camper. What? She's not even named in this story, right? But no, no, she's just a is. random duchess. But yep. you know, we know who she is because uh, you know where we've met her before? We've met her in Corsica. And you know why we met her? Because it was cheaper than the French Riviera. You know, she wanted to get out of Monaco because the hotel prices were just too expensive. And who did she drag with her from the Riviera to Corsica? Oh, that's right. She dragged one, Mr. Satterthwaite, in a little story called The World's End. The entire raison d'etre of Poirot going to the Duchess's party in London is to see Mr. Satterthwaite. Catherine, I could practically hear you screaming all the way across Los Angeles when I read the name Mr. Satterthwaite within this novella. I was not expecting it. I No, nor was I. There are only two times that Poirot and Satterthwaite meet in the course of a story. We, of course, covered the first of those, which was the novel Three-Act Tragedy. Which and this is the second. Men- and it's immediately mentioned because totally. Mr. Satterthwaite says to Poirot, you know, it was such a pleasure watching you work close hand in that business at the crow's nest. And also, by the way, do you know who I just saw last week? Lady Mary. Just mwah, chef's kiss. Oh, it was the per- it was like the perfect interaction with Mr. Satterthwaite because it's not very long and it's really just expositional right at the beginning of the story. So Poirot can find out more about Gervais. It's just so perfect and so charming. You know, what does he say? I always feel myself privileged to have seen you work at close quarters in the crow's nest business. I feel since then that I am in the know, so to speak. <laughs> oh, Mr. Satterthwaite. Yeah. And then he says, I saw Lady Mary only last week, by the way. A charming creature. Potpourri and lavender. I will have I you know, him. Kemper, I'll have you know, Kemper, that I just quoted most of that to you without looking at the text because that was how impacted I was. By I know. Appearance. No, this was like, if you had been writing fan fiction, Catherine, <laughs> I feel like it wouldn't be much different from what we get at the beginning of this novella. It's just, just no, perfection. It is. Anyway, Satterthwaite is actually a really good person for Poirot to seek out. And it makes one wish that perhaps Poirot would have sought him out more in these kind of cases. Because Satterthwaite, as we know from the Mr. Clinton stories, has an encyclopedic knowledge of who's who, much more than the actual who's who does, in fact. Have we ever been told that Mr. Satterthwaite is a looker-on who has keen <laughs> observational abilities? Did that ever come up in any of the uh, Mr. Quinn stories? <laughs> Gee, I Maybe wonder. once or twice? Does it come up again here? And did that just fill my heart? He was a keen observer of human nature. And if it is true that the looker-on knows most of the game, Mr. Satterthwaite knew a good deal. Yes. Yes, Agatha. <laughs> Poirot essentially sort of guides him from talking about everybody to um, asking about the Chavanek score family. Satterthwaite knows them because, in fact, they are an ancient 
family. They have been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years as this esteemed wealthy family. And, um, you know, it turns out that Sir Gervais is the last of them because the name's going to die out with him. And everybody is sort of aware that he's become increasingly obsessed about his genealogy. He always was. He's always been a massive egoist. But now that his name is dying out, he's become even snobbier and even more obsessive than he ever was before. It might be to the point where people don't like being around him because he's seemed increasingly kind of crazy about it. Poirot makes some asides about you know, men who are egoists. And it's my favorite bit because Satterthwaite has to bite down on his lip to stop from smiling because mm-hmm. he essentially thinks to himself that Poirot is certainly one to talk about being, you know, an egomaniac. No, it's a great interaction because we get to see the weaknesses of both men and yet their mm-hmm. strengths too, because Satterthwaite is extremely knowledgeable and adroit about his his observations as to the Chevnik's core family. And then Poirot also makes that excellent, I think, psychological insight that, well, you know, men who are that extremely egotistic, as it seems Sir Gervais is, are actually quite vulnerable because right. they're blind, essentially. It's like they can't see beyond themselves to the point where someone could actually be trying to do harm to them and they might not even know, which is a curious thing to say because, of course, it is Sir Gervais who reached out to him thinking that there might be something going on. But, you know, our Poirot is always about two steps ahead anyway. So it's all just very intriguing. And now we know more than ever that even though he's a little miffed by the manner in which he's been brought into this, that should Sir Gervais call him down to his estate, Poirot is totally going to go. And sure enough, (laughs) he is subsequently summoned and Poirot takes the express train, which should arrive at 7.50, but it's more than 10 minutes late. So Poirot ends up arriving just around 8.15 to Hamborough Close, just as dinner is to be served. And he goes into the drawing room where all the guests are assembled to go into dinner. And everyone is shocked because no one had been expecting him. But there's an even greater shock in that Sir Gervais is not among those assembled in the drawing room about to go into dinner. And he has never been late for dinner like never like ever like he's so psychotic about punctuality when it comes to dinner that if any guest of his is late he doesn't ask them back so right. everyone is sort of keyed up of as to the whole like oh we have to be we have to be here on time so they are all in that room Poirot comes into the room and then it's time for dinner. It's 8.15 and Sir Gervais is not there and everyone, they don't know what to do. And Poirot, even though he just arrived, actually just takes charge of the situation. And he asks the butler, Snell, to take him to the study, which is where Sir Gervais was last seen. Right. And Snell's already gone there once. The door is locked. And so it's Poirot who's like, oh, God, okay, fine. We're going back. And Poro hammers on the door a few times and then he bends down and he looks through the keyhole, which also should tell you, by the way, there's no key in the keyhole. And he sees something that alarms him enough that he urgently demands the door be broken down. So um, Hugo and Burroughs do it. It takes a few tries and they find that Sir Gervais is sitting with his back to the door, slumped in his desk chair, and he is dead from a gunshot to the temple, which appears to have shattered the room's mirror. Um, The bullet is on the ground near the mirror. The gun has fallen out of the dead man's hand, so it is by his side, and a scrawled note reading simply, sorry, is on the desk. Yeah, the mirror was shivered. That's a verb you don't come across too often. No. A mirror mirror to be shivered, i.e. shattered, essentially. Right. 
All right. So Poirot sends everyone away except for Hugo Trent, who, again, is uh, Sir Gervais's nephew. Hugo confirms there was a first dinner gong, which is always scheduled to be hit seven minutes before dinner. And, and again, dinner that evening was set for 8.15. So that was at 8.08 <laughs> that that first dinner gong rang out. And then as people were kind of coming down the stairs, there was this bang, a very loud banging noise that everyone thought was either a champagne cork being popped or maybe a car backfiring. And Hugo actually joked that it could have been a gunshot and, oh, maybe it's murder. But no one thought that that was the case. But obviously that seems to have entirely been the case since now we are confronted with Sir Gervais's corpse. And Poirot sends Hugo away and we now have the entrance of our police inspector du jour for this story, right. Major Riddle. And Major Riddle shows up with a constable and also a coroner, and they all think that this is an open-shut case of suicide. And that is unquestionably the way that this case would be resolved, if not for Monsieur Poirot. Right, because and we've seen this before. Poirot just being there is immediately a cause for suspicion. Major Riddle's going to take him seriously because something is up here. And, you know, Poirot just immediately is fixated on the mirror. This becomes exacerbated because he finds a shard of glass alongside some brass figures um, on a shelf in the study. And, you know, it could have been blown back there by the force of the bullet. The key to the room, we should note, was in the dead man's pocket. The windows to the room are shut. So we have a locked room. We know where the key is. We know everything's shut. It really does seem like suicide. Regardless, as we said, because Poirot was always going to be taken seriously, the two men, you know, have to go through the motions of interviewing everyone in the house. Right. I mean, the one thing that Poirot does note at the outset is that the angle required for the bullet to have passed through Sir Gervais's head and hit the mirror is a little awkward. Like his head would have had to be really slumped down and angled upward <laughs> for the bullet like, to hit the mirror. I, I liked Major Riddle's point about that. Poirot essentially says, who sits in a chair like that? And Major Riddle says, well, he was about to kill himself. So is that really the question? Right. Like weird stuff happens when people kill themselves. So, you know. In any case, with no exceptions, everyone in the house who heard that shot, the sound of what they thought was a champagne cork or a car backfiring, they have the same story in terms of the timing of the evening. They all say, yes, that happened right after the sounding of the first gong for dinner. The only slight difference is in the case of Susan Cardwell of the Flaming Red Hair who notes that she definitely remembers when this all happened because when she heard the shot, she thought that it was just after the second gong Mm -hmm. because she thought that she had heard the gong earlier and that when the first one was hit, that was actually the second. And she had actually gotten into trouble earlier in her visit for being one minute late to dinner. As we mentioned, Sir Gervais did not take kindly to people being late for dinner. So she heard that and like basically panicked. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, oh my God, bol- the second gong. And bolted down the stairs. Yeah, And that's mm-hmm. why she was on the stairs when this this sound, the shot rang out. Because she she's actually engaged to Hugo Trent. She's trying to make a good impression here. So that's why she remembers because she was in this state of panic. 
Titanic. And that's a little bit different from everyone else. And it is very much slipped into the story there. We are making a lot more of it right now in our summary. But I think Christy plays very fair. The information is there, but she's she's deft as she usually is. That's kind of slipping it in there and allowing the reader to move on. Well, it's because we get immediately distracted because what it seems like the information we're getting from her is that news about her engagement. And why would that be a problem, do you think? And it's because we find out from Mr. Forbes, the family lawyer, that Sir Gervais was essentially hellbent on making Ruth marry Hugo. And then Hugo was going to be forced to take the family name so that the Chavanex Gore name would live on. And he'd invited Mr. Forbes down for the weekend to change his will in order to force the two of them to do that. Even though, as it's noted by multiple people, that's probably not remotely legal and that no court would uphold that. But he didn't care because he crazy. Crazier than even we realize, I think. But um, essentially what he was rewriting the will to say is that if um, Hugo refused to marry Ruth, Ruth would get all of the inheritance regardless. But if Ruth didn't agree, she'd be disinherited and all the money would go to Hugo. And Susan, let's just say she was not happy. And then she also notes uh, Ruth wasn't so psyched about this either because Ruth also had a suitor who, by the way, is not Mr. Burroughs, the secretary, despite a number of people hinting at that. Then we have an interview with Miss Lingard, and she tells Poirot and Riddle that she had been working with Sir Gervais earlier in the day and that he had seemed somewhat distressed about something. And, you know, it wasn't just the bad investment that Colonel Barry had made him invest in that had been kind of an ongoing source of conflict between the two men. She thought it was something genealogical and in particular something related to Hugo Trent, the nephew. And she also noted that Sir Gervais was in a bad enough mood that he'd asked her to do some tasks that normally he would have reserved for his secretary, Mr. Burroughs. But it seems that he was also irked at Mr. Burroughs. He was just mad at a lot of different people. So it was actually Miss Lingard who arranged for the car to pick up Poirot from the train station and who notified Snell that dinner would be at 8.15 that evening rather than at 8, which is when it usually was, just to allow some time for Poirot to arrive. Then Poirot actually asks her a question which has to do with his eagle-eyed observations. You can't put anything past Poirot. He saw her when they, you know, were all trooping on down to the study and bursting open the door and, and finding the body of Sir Gervais. He saw Miss Lingard pick something up in the hall at that time. And he asks her what it was. And she's like, did I? And then she's like, mm-hmm. oh, my, yeah, oh my God, you're totally right. I did. So she empties out her pocketbook and she's got a bunch of stuff in there. She could totally do a like what's in my bag for us weekly. She definitely could. Although I will also note, Kemper, that there is something clever here because we get a long list of what's in her bag. We do. We get a laundry list of items. And you know what? True. It doesn't matter. None of these items ends up being important. It's true. Let's give some props to Christy. I know. That is a red herring of a laundry list. I know. I actually really appreciated it because I was definitely like, I made a little comment and I was like, laundry list. And then I was like, oh, 
look, I made a comment and it's not going to matter. Yeah. So what she gives Poirot and says that, oh, this is what I picked up. It's this little pencil that's actually made from a bullet. So it actually looks like a bullet, but it's not. It's a pencil. It is a bullet, except it was a bullet. It was a bullet. Yes, it was a bullet, but it was a bullet a very long time ago. (laughs) So it's been made into a pencil and it belongs to Colonel Barry. He had been using it earlier that day. She saw it on the ground. She realized, oh, he had been using this when we were playing bridge. He must have dropped it. What she claims is that she put it in her in her bag and promptly forgot about it. We find out from Mr. Forbes that the will had never been redrafted. So he'd been brought down for that purpose, but nothing had really come of it, not since he um, had been there. So the old will stands, bulk of the money going to Ruth. We find out from the colonel that Ruth is, in fact, a Chavanex Gore and not a distant relative. She's Sir Gervais's brother's illegitimate daughter, and Ruth doesn't know this. But the colonel does because he's known Sir Gervais and Vanda for so many years. And what happened was that the brother died in the war, but not before having been involved in a romantic relationship with a typist. And so after he died, Sir Gervais and Vanda end up adopting their biological niece. And from Ruth herself, uh, we find out that not only does she have a suitor, oh, Kemper, she has a husband. Because three weeks earlier, She'd secretly married Captain Lake. They had done it in secret because she figured it would be easier to sell her father on the marriage once it was a done deal. In case you forgot, because there are a surprising number of characters in this story. Right. For a story that's, I I mean, to be fair, this is, I I believe, the longest novella within the collection. It's 100 pages or or thereabouts. So Colonel Lake was the estate agent for the Chevenix Corps estate. They're married now. Poirot decides to do an experiment because sometimes that is what Poirot does. This is quite an active Poirot story as well. We're in the Mm -hmm. 30s. He's still fairly spry. He actually recruits Susan Cardwell as a witness. And he goes out of the drawing room window into the garden where there are four small footprints that he can tell by the shoe that made them are are female. These four footprints are all in the flower bed. And two of them are kind of facing the, the window leading into the study and two of them are pointing in the opposite direction. At the same time, Poirot also shows Susan an old burglar trick of how you can knock the French windows of the study closed from the outside. I'll be honest, the mechanism by which it works in the original story is not the same mechanism that we see in the Suchet adaptation because there's a rod involved in the yes. original story. I had a hard time envisioning it when I was reading it. It's much simpler in the Suchet adaptation. Either way, it's very convenient. <laughs> but I feel like Christie probably did this in real life or like saw that this was possible, you know, with a set of French windows in her house or someone else's house and was like, oh, interesting. A potential sort of wrinkle for a locked room mystery. But he shows very convincingly that you can lock these French doors from the outside and make it seem as though they've been locked on the inside. So I think it's because if the handle turns, right, it pulls up the rod that locks into the ground to actually secure the windows shut. So if you can knock out the rod from outside and force the rod back into the ground, it turns the handle because they're linked the other direction on the inside, thus locking it from the inside. It's kind of clever. Yeah, it's clever. It's clever. It's, you know, (laughs) the most mundane solution to a locked room mystery I've ever read. And I actually (laughs) 
don't mean that as an insult. I kind of mean it as a compliment. Like, oh, we it, talked because well, it makes sense. I mean, like, it makes sense, and it's very simple. Like, we talked about the ludicrous solution to Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Like, we, we mm-hmm. won't go back into that, but it's insane. And often, the solution to these locked room mysteries in these golden age novels are just absolutely ridiculous. And that's part of the fun. But this is the most grounded, simple way to get around a locked room I've come across. So well done. Yeah. And we should also note that during all of this, Poirot actually investigating physically, he also has found um, in the trash a paper bag for oranges that has been sort of randomly abandoned in a trash can. All right. So Poirot asks Ruth if she'd been in the garden more than once. And she notes she'd been out there twice, once around seven to pick fresh flowers for dinner. And then once really right around the time of the murder, probably um, because she has stained her dress and she needs something to cover it up. So she goes outside to pick a rose to pin onto her shoulder. So Poirot gathers everyone for an announcement and he begins to point the finger at Ruth. Remember, I think I think we might be ready to see the world as it actually is. I think so. The world as it appears to be the ravishing Ruth Chevenick's gore is guilty. How could that possibly be? There must be something else at play here. So let's go through some clues to get to the world as it actually is. Clue number one is a Christie classic. This is timing. We have ye old temporal obfuscation going on here. I feel like we haven't actually talked about timing shifts in a bit, but it's been a while, I think. Yeah, it feels like it's been a while, but you know, it's central to Hercule Poirot's Christmas, actually, and also the murder of Roger Ackroyd and so many. Well, I think the last time I clearly remember seeing it might have been towards zero. We certainly have it here. And first of all, we have every character saying the same sequence of events, right? The timing Mm -hmm. is all matching. And there's an emphasis here on that lineup of events and also just how much punctuality matters in this house, right? Because it's so important to be on time for dinner. So an astute reader, you know, knows that something has to be up here with timing, that Christy has to have something up her sleeve. You know, let's not forget that the short story version is called The Second Gong. <laughs> right, so I know. that it's helps a of, little bit. sort of a spoiler. <laughs> if, you're, if you're wanting direction on where to look, you know, the yeah. short story tells you. It's kind of a spoiler, but I think it's a really satisfying title because I think that you don't still quite get there. But then when you do, you're like, oh my God, it's in the title. She's <laughs> telling me what it is and I still didn't get it. So yeah, remember, of course, that Susan's story was slightly different, right? Where she thought that she heard the second gong when everyone else thought that they heard the first gong. And then, you know, there is the real second gong, which rings out once Poirot has arrived, right? Right. At 15 Mm -hmm. at dinner time. So we should not discount Susan thinking that she had heard the gong once before. It turns out that uh, she did actually hear the gong three times, ultimately. And it's noted that her room is directly above the study where Sir Gervais was killed. So our deduction here should be that something must have hit the gong before Snell hit it for purposes of dinner. Clue number two, Kemper. Speaking of that study, folks, we got ourselves a diagram. A diagram! I love it! (laughs) I know. I never, ever forget how that matters in most of these stories slash books, unless on the very rare occasion, it's a red herring of a diagram. Murder on the Orient Express. Yes, correct. Not so much here because the desk in the study is parallel to a narrow hallway at the end of which hangs the gong. And Sir Gervais is found 
perpendicular to that long, narrow hall, i.e. his back is to the door and he's facing the window. So again, that's how the bullet would have hit the mirror. However, if he had been sitting at his desk in a normal way, like a normal person would do, um, and not looking to a window that had closed drapes and shot in the same way, then guess what? That bullet would have gone in the direction of that long, narrow hallway. And potentially, I suppose the velocity uh, here is maybe a little suspect, but uh, if that bullet had careened down the hall, it would have been going in directly the right angle and way to hit that gong. But, and this is also critical, it only could have done that if the door to the study was open, which we know it wasn't. It was locked from the inside, right? So the deduction here is probably that the door was open and that the bullet did hit the gong down the hall and that someone shut the door, locked it from the inside, turned the chair, somehow broke that mirror, and then they exited out the French windows. But not before. What is clue number three, Kemper? Breaking the mirror with that brass statue on the shelf, the one that had a little shard of glass on it, which Poirot found and noted. The scene was clearly staged. That's the deduction here, right? Right. So, you know, if the bullet went through Sir Gervais's head and went down the hallway and hit that gong, and that would be why Susan Cardwell heard the quote-unquote first gong, that would mean, of course, that the bullet never hit the mirror and that the mirror hadn't been smashed or shivered at all. So someone had to break the mirror to make it seem as though the bullet hit it, and they could have easily used that statue to do it, which is why there would have been a shard of glass on it. And we're outlining here a very carefully plotted murder that happened several minutes before that sound that everyone assumed was the gunshot that killed Sir Gervais. You know, the mirror has cracked from side to side, but not from a bullet. Yeah, we do get the... Uh, yeah, the Lady of Shalott. Yeah. Lady of <laughs> Not the last time we'll be seeing No, hmm? <laughs> no, and <laughs> not at all. Clue number four, we have Ruth's two trips to the garden and the fact that there aren't enough sets of footprints. Because if she went to the garden twice, why would there only be a set of footprints going out and a set of footprints going back? That doesn't make any sense. There should have been double the number of footprints that there were. I mean, even more than that, because she says she was picking. Yeah, so she was in. Right? She was right. She was in the flower bed. She would have been like shuffling around in the flower bed. There probably would have been like a dozen footprints right. all overlapping each other. And, and there, are, there are two very clear sets of footprints pointing mm-hmm. in opposite directions. Right. And so essentially what we can gather from this is when she went to go get the daisies around seven o'clock and she was trampling all over the flower bed, her footprints aren't there anymore. And the only way that that could possibly be the case is if somebody had raked over them. However, because her second set of footprints is still there, it means that after somebody raked over the original footprints, she went back out there again. So she did not rake over her original footprints because if you're going to do that, why wouldn't you rake over the second set too? So it essentially um, acquits Ruth of any kind of crime because it doesn't make any sense that she would have done that. Right. And that second set of footprints was when she was getting the rose, rose right, to yeah. put over her shoulder. And that makes sense because you would just step into the dirt of the flower bed, find the rose, snip it off, and then turn around and step out, which is why there would be two clear sets of footprints from that second time. Yeah, so Ruth actually could not have done it. Who could possibly have done it? We get our answer pretty soon in our resolution here because Poirot has been accusing Ruth as a bit of a ruse. 
in fact. And then it is Miss Lingard who jumps in and says she did it. That she had a reason, but she doesn't really want to go into the reason in front of every, in front of everyone. So Poirot sends everyone away and has a little tete-a-tete with her, along with, of course, Major Riddle. And Miss Lingard tells all. Miss Lingard's very smart. She's guessing that he accused Ruth because he knew that Miss Lingard would jump in to stop him. And Poirot shrugs and responds, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. she's totally right. He assumes that she would, and it's because he's assuming that Ruth is her daughter. And Miss Lingard doesn't fight this at all. She absolutely confirms this to be the case. Here's what she says. She had taken the researcher job when she saw who it was for, since uh, the family had treated her pretty badly when she was young and pregnant with Sir Gervais's brother's baby. And she'd been keeping a watchful eye over her daughter from a distance for years after Ruth had been adopted into the family. And of course, no one recognizes her now that she's a middle-aged lady. She's become become invisible. Where do we know this from? (laughs) Yeah. Christie's never written about the fact that people don't look too closely at uh, aged women. And she was around Sir Gervais all the time. She had plenty of access. So she saw him write that letter to Poirot. She knew that Sir Gervais was planning to try to force Ruth into a marriage that she didn't want. She knew of the plans to call down Mr. Forbes, the lawyer, and to potentially disinherit Ruth. She also knew, because she really knew everything, how happy that Ruth and Captain Lake were together. Right. So it's Miss Lingard who sends the telegram for Poirot. And she has timed the entire thing. She knew that Poirot was on that train coming down. And then that evening, she went into that study to discuss the book with Sir Gervais before dinner. She shot him while he was sitting at his desk because he, of course, wouldn't suspect anything because he was an egoist, right? He would certainly never suspect the middle-aged lady who is actually secretly writing his book and then, uh, you know, he's going to take all the credit for. Certainly would not suspect her. So she easily shoots him. The only thing that she didn't expect was she didn't expect the bullet to go through his head, which she really says matter-of-factly. And, you know, it hit the gong. So she had always intended to stage it as a suicide, but she had to kind of act on her feet a little bit. She stages what she can in the room, locks the door from the inside, does exactly what Poirot called the burglar trick at the window, rakes over the flower bed, and then she has to go put the rake back. So she circled back around the house for dinner. So that's actually how she didn't see Ruth go out the second time. And she also, after having replaced the rake, moseyed on into the drawing room of the house. And it's here that she used that paper bag we mentioned earlier, because we should be specific about where Poirot found it. He found it in the drawing room, not the study where the body was. So what Miss Lingard did is that just after Snell rang the first gong, a.k.a. Susan Cardwell's second gong, She filled up that paper bag with air in the drawing room and then popped it, creating the sound that everyone assumed after the fact was the gunshot that killed Sir Gervais. And right after she made that popping sound, she came out of the drawing room into the hall and was all, oh my, what just happened? I.e., she's given herself an alibi by virtue of, or vice of, we should say, ye old temporal obfuscation. 
Right. And so after Poirot gets there, after Sir Gervais doesn't show up to dinner, the entire crew essentially goes back down the hall to the study. And that's when Poirot sees her picking up something, which she, of course, says is the colonel's bullet pencil. It was actually the bullet itself. She knew that it was going to be in the hallway. There was just no possibility for her to go get it. So she picks it up when everybody else is there. And while everybody else is horrified and looking at the body, she drops the bullet underneath the shattered mirror. She doesn't care that Paro's figured it out. You know, her only wish is that her daughter lives a happy life. And more importantly, that she never knows who Miss Lingard was and why the murder happened. And Paro agrees. This is like extrajudicial Paro here. Later, when Ruth sort of is bewildered by it, you know, Ruth really doesn't want to see her go to trial. Paro says, oh, you know, well, if it's any consolation, you know, she's terminally ill. She probably only has a few weeks to live. And Ruth is just, she can't get over it. And the story ends with her just asking, but why? Yeah, I mean, it's curious because Ruth is a smart cookie, right? And she's like, mm, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, right. it, it wouldn't. But Christy's owning that. And it is. It's actually a poignant ending. Yeah. Or yeah. Because, like, you know, but, it's probably going to bother Ruth for years, right? Like, what on earth was that possibly about? I don't blame Poirot for agreeing to Miss Lingard's demands there. He does it out of sympathy, but it might not have actually been the best way to go. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I would like to hope that once Miss Lingard passes away from her terminal illness, Poirot goes back and tells Ruth what happened. A distinct possibility. So here's one problem I had with this version of the story, which I only thought of, though, when I read the second gong. So first of all, the one character that has no counterpart in the second gong is Miss Lingard. (laughs) There's no Miss Lingard in the second gong. So it's a different murderer. The murderer is actually, and I'm not going to use the different character names because it's just too confusing. But so in the second gong, the character who it is, is Godfrey Burroughs, the secretary. It's actually the good-looking secretary who had been fleecing his boss. So he thought that that was why Sir Gervais had been sending for Poirot and whatnot. It actually turned out to be completely unrelated, like that whole central conflict as to the adopted daughter and the marriage and all that. That is all still swirling around in the short story, The Second Gong, but the actual reason why he was killed just had to do with the secretary feeling cornered. And it's almost comedic at the end, you know, when the mask is kind of lifted and the secretary just like faints dead away because he just like can't handle it. And that's the end. But when they're talking about what the secretary did in terms of the temporal obfuscation and all that, there's a major issue here, which is the actual shooting of the gun would have been super loud. When the bullet hits the gong, sure, that made a noise that Susan Cardwell heard, But the actual shooting of the actual gun would have also made a noise that people would have heard if the smashing of a paper bag is also making a noise that people are marking on. I will make only one comment about this, which is in fairness to this story, Mr. Burroughs doesn't hear the quote unquote gun, which was the paper bag. He doesn't hear it because he's in the library, which is on the other side of the house. The other people all hear it because they are waiting in the grand hall outside of the drawing room because the first gong has already been hit. So they are literally standing in that area when they hear the right quote outside unquote, the study. Correct. When they hear the right. quote unquote gunshot. None of those people have been in the vicinity when the actual gunshot went off. 
If Susan Cardwell heard a bullet hitting a gong and thought that that was the gong hitting, she would have heard the gunshot too. Yeah, definitely possible. And that is solved for in the short story, The Second Gong, and the Suchet adaptation by simply saying that there was a silencer put on the gun. Yeah. But interestingly, that is not included in the rundown of what Miss Lingard did here. There's no silencer. I just thought it was interesting because it's one of those a little bit beside the point things that like maybe it's just sort of like wraps up a potential loose end, but it's not that important. So maybe well, Chrissy I mean, was the, just sort of like, eh, who cares? <laughs> the only the only person I think reasonably who would have heard it was Susan. Yeah, and I think she probably would have. It's just interesting that she obviously thought of it in her earlier version and then she took it out. I find that interesting. Also, a similar issue, the sound of smashing the mirror would have also yeah. been super loud. There was a lot of loud stuff going on in that study, and if Susan Cardwell was right above it and heard a bullet hitting a gong, she probably would have heard that too, but, you know. I mean, I suppose so also you could argue, so the gong is placed at the edge of the Great Hall, and so, I mean, you could sort of argue that maybe the study itself is much more muffled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it's also interesting in comparing the second gong to Dead Man's Mirror, other than changing up the murderer, which she has no problem doing, because again, she could just have like a million different iterations for these puzzle mysteries. The main way that she padded it out was by adding a lot of character stuff. All of the kind of megalomania of Sir Gervais, that is none of that really is in the second gong. And even Vanda. It's in a little bit, like his obsession. A like- little bit, but it's not very interesting. It's not unusual. And it is unusual in Dead Man's Mirror. Like, she makes him an interesting character, whereas in the second gong, he's a little bit more of a type. Vanda is a much more out-there character in Dead Man's Mirror than she is in the second gong as well. And then, of course, we get the framing with Mr. Satterthwaite. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest, like, our favorite part. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, I will also say that there's nothing in Dead Man's Mirror that is saying that Mr. Burroughs wasn't stealing from Sir Gervais because one of the things that Ruth tells Poirot is that she thinks um, that the investment with the colonel wasn't the only stupid business decision that um, he'd been making recently. Oh, totally. The one aspect of the story that rubbed me the wrong way, if we were ranking this and we were going to talk about stuck in his time elements, we almost nearly touched on this issue in our last novel, actually, Mrs. McGinty's Dead, and it's something that is majorly going to come up when we get to Ordeal by Innocence, the oft-referenced and now at this point hyped novel that we have yet to get to, which we're ensuring that it's going to be a disappointment. But, um, <laughs> oh, no, don't say it. But, I mean, Ordeal by Innocence has a lot of weirdness about adoption in it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's central to the puzzle mystery. And we get two references in the story to how, well... Ruth Chevenick's score is only adopted. This sense that she's not really their daughter. And it's not important to the story, but to a 21st century ear, it rings a little false or at least unpleasant. It's unpleasant to begin with. And then it's extra unpleasant when you realize that she's really their niece. I mean, it is very believable that a man like Serge Gervais would not adopt anyone who wasn't somewhat related to him. Well, I mean, Um, again, she is being left the entirety of the estate. It's not like she wasn't important to him. The notion of an adopted child being less than is not something that feels like it is being interrogated in a robust way in this story. Let's just put it that way. 
it's a classic stuck in its time. I, th- I think people thought about adoption and just the nature nur- versus nurture issue differently from how a lot of people think about it today. Not all people. I think there are a lot of people that probably st- still feel you know more that way than I guess I just personally do. I find it distasteful, but I think fewer people found it distasteful at the time uh, that it was written. I, I think that adoption remains to this day a complicated issue. And I, I'd like to say that, oh, it's 2020 and people are cool about things like that. You know, I will be honest, I really don't think that a lot of people are. And you see it all the time in stories about Ancestry.com and 23andMe and finding lost siblings and all of the weird feelings that that brings up with people. I think the way that we tend to talk about it, at least frame those issues is a little bit different or maybe a little bit more tentative (laughs) than it feels like it might be happening in some of these stories. But really, we haven't even really gotten to the major novel that delves into it, which is, again, Ordeal by Innocence. Right. Yeah. Before we close out, we should mention, of course, the adaptation for this novel, our beloved David Suchet series. This was adapted in season slash series five. It was actually the seven of eight episodes. It aired in early 1993. This is that season where they did a lot of the short stories that they hadn't done yet because they had adapted so many of them in the really early seasons. And it's kind of the last of the many episode season. Like there are eight of them. Most of them are, if not all of them, are 50 minutes long. This one certainly is 50 minutes long. So we're still in that older model of the earlier seasons. Suchet himself, in his book Poirot and Me, he's very politic about it, but this is what he says. It is a gentle story rather than one to set the blood racing which I feel like is genial David Suchet speak for, yeah, this wasn't very good. (laughs) It's not bad. As I so often do, I'm going to turn to Mark Aldrich because he has a really excellent summation for what is weird and potentially wrong about this episode. This is what he writes. The episode is a perfectly pleasant adaptation, but shows the beginnings of a lack of confidence in the source material as a, quote, spooky, end quote, atmosphere is emphasized throughout, including billowing white curtains and a score clearly designed to evoke a sense of near paranormal unease in the viewer. When the final shot features the superimposition of a hangman's noose on a close-up of a thoughtful Poirot, the audience might sense a movement towards style over substance. It's so true. The last shot is weird. I don't even understand what they're trying to say with that shot, because we get this weird sequence where instead of Miss Lingard jumping up and proclaiming her guilt when Poirot is accusing Ruth, he accuses Ruth and Ruth gets taken away. And then there's this bizarre sequence at the very end of the episode where Miss Lingard gets some sort of an intercom system, apparently, and she pretends to be the ancient Egyptian spirit guide of Vanda and it's like this ghostly voice throughout the house and she's like wake up Vanda and the voice that she puts on is actually kind of not okay Vanda wake up it's Safra Vanda come downstairs and <laughs> and Vanda's like well, what's what's going on and she's like you must confess Vanda it- It was you killed him. No. You know it was you killed Gervais. 
And then Poirot steps in and he's like, okay, enough. And they find Miss Lingard like behind a wall, Oz, great and powerful like, and then she confesses everything. But it is weird. We also have a fire that comes out of nowhere. This episode is adapted by Anthony Horowitz. I know. I was going to, I was trying, I was like, <laughs> I don't want to besmirch Anthony Horowitz, who I like very much. But yes, it is adapted by Anthony Horowitz. I say that with all the love in the world, because you know what? This might be of note to some listeners. I am really, really enjoying Anthony Horowitz's current mystery series in which he himself is a character, you no, know, a sidekick of sorts to the detective well, he's writing novels about. It's the word is murder and the sentence is death. Mm-hmm. They're, I think they're great fun. I'm yeah, and I will also note that we have had more than one listener request uh, about doing an episode looking at the Magpie Murders, which is obviously a uh, slight satire on Poirot. Oh, love Magpie Murders, which also includes a cameo by Matthew Pritchard. I believe. Yeah. Like real life Matthew Pritchard <laughs> features in Bagpipe Murders. Yeah. No, he's, I mean, my God, the guy is ridiculous. Also, not prolific. to mention Foil's War and Midsummer Murders. Midsummer Murders. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, an, it's insane. I actually read these two uh, mysteries out of order because he wrote the word as murder and then the sentence is death. I actually read the sentence is death first. And I'm, I'm actually in the middle of reading the word is murder right now. And he opens up the sentence is death, though, with an abortive scene from Foil's War where they're like trying to make their shots and make their days. And it's a disaster. And it's just really fun. And you get to like geek out with him. And yeah, I, I really like him. A lot. No, I know. And so and so it's absolutely it's with all the love in the world to him. But this episode has some weird elements to it. Yeah, there's no truck chase, but no, no Clive, no Clive Exton <laughs> classic. <laughs> right, that's yeah, that's Clive Exton, of course. Yeah, it, it's no Clive Exton truck chase, but it is a raging fire, and then Hugo Trent is a furniture designer. I know, also. Very, very modern, very, very much, yeah, very modern furniture, and played by Jeremy Northam. I know. Very young Jeremy Northam, Hugo Trent, Sir Gervais and Miss Lingard. Well, and it's not Sir, right? It's just Gervais. Right. Gervais and Miss Lingard are writing a book about Fauvism, not mm-hmm. his family genealogy. So there's this whole focus on art and architecture and design, which makes sense because this whole series has such impeccable taste, right? When right. it comes to locations and production design and costuming, and it's all just very beautiful and fun. And like, I mean, I loved all of those changes, but yes, The Raging Fire was surprising as was that sequence at the end with poor Vanda. It's an overall odd episode. Yeah, and that's why Mark talks about the score. The score is so heavy. And of course, we also get no Satterthwaite. But we do get Hastings and Jap. Yes, we do. Of course, Hastings comes along and Jap, rather than Major Riddle, is the inspector who comes in on the case. So, I, I, you know, I think it's it's perfectly harmless as an adaptation, which is damning with faint praise here when it comes to this series, because normally I think we're... Well, I mean, also, I will say in fairness, it's adapted sort of in the short story manner. But as we've noted before, it's really long. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the novella that we covered recently, Murder in the Muse, we talked about how that was actually kind of a perfect length for a 50-minute adaptation because it was slightly shorter than this one and just less plotty. It was very simple. 
Oh, it's very streamlined. Yeah, Yeah, it was very simple and streamlined. So it's not even an issue so much of page length as simplicity of structure. This one's just got a lot of moving parts and a lot of different things going on. And they preserved all of that. I think they felt that they just had to, for whatever reason, add this kind of spiritualistic, almost spooky tonality to it. I'm not sure why. It's in the short story because there's the running plot of Vanda in the novella continuing to see her husband. Yes. Threaded throughout the entire novella. It's played almost for laughs, or or it's at least played more for laughs. It's played played to some extent for laughs, but... There's also an element of like, well, you know, she's just processing or like this is what grief looks like. But, you know, she's pretty committed to it regardless. No, she is. And to be fair to the series, actually, there's a wonderfully comedic sequence in which Jap is misunderstanding Vanda about her spiritualism. Yeah. You know, Chief Inspector, life is one of the great illusions. I'm afraid I don't quite agree with that, Mrs. Shrevenix. Gervais knew that. He and I, you see, we met on the same plane. On holiday? The spiritual plane. And even though the novella is certainly very enjoyable, too, I mean, this isn't a Christie Crown Jewel, but it is a perfectly enjoyable mystery puzzle that hums right along and it's the longest novella within this collection but as readable as christy always is and i'm sad that we actually only have one more of these novellas because i actually enjoy having a little bit more to hold on to than we do in many of the short stories but not having the full complication of a full-length novel yeah it's a little overstuffed But I don't think that's a huge knock against it. Yeah, it really is interesting, actually, comparing this one and Murder in the Muse, because you could argue that this one's overstuffed and that one's a little understuffed. I think I I argued exactly that when we discussed it. I think I said this could be a full length novel. She could have just expanded. Yeah, no, it was a little spare for you. I actually Uh really liked Murder in the Muse. Like, I liked how it was spare. I I really liked it, too, but I liked it enough that I thought it could definitely have been full length and still held my attention. And that's what I liked about it, because I think Murder in the Muse left you wanting more. Yes. This one, for as overstuffed as this one is, I don't finish this one and think to myself, boy, I wish this was 270 pages. No. (laughs) You know, I'm like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I get it. (laughs) Well, it's because ultimately it is a little repetitive. Yeah. There's a reason why the short story version, which is maybe, what, 15% the length, fully encapsulates the puzzle mystery. Oh, I know. It it was funny. I think we probably read them in the same order. I read the novella first. Yeah. And then when I read the short story, I was like, wow, this just zips along. God. I know. I was like, this short story is great. (laughs) I know. No, I really thought that I was reading it, and I was like, this is terrific. Even though it didn't have Mr. Satterthwaite. (laughs) I know. No Mr. Satterthwaite. Such a disappointment. And yet I was just zipping right along here. Well, we are going to zip right along to the end of this episode. That is Dead Man's Mirror slash The Second Gong. Join us next time for a mysterious Mr. Quinn story. This is actually quite appropriate since we were mentioning Mr. Satterthwaite in this episode. He made a guest appearance. And we have these two outlier mysterious Mr. Quinn stories that were not collected 
in the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection. So we saved one of them for Valentine's Day, since these are the love detectives after all. And the title of one of these two outlier short stories is The Love Detectives. So that is what we are going to be covering. That episode will be coming out as a special episode on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Aww. I cannot wait. For Valentine's Day? Uh, no, I cannot wait for this episode. <laughs> I was like, are you really going to be that excited for your Russell Stover's box of chocolates? Oh, I buy Russell Stover on February 15th because that's when it's like oh, in the discount. bargain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You go into like CVS, you can get all the chocolate that you want oh, for like yes. a buck the, 50. The, the Reese's hearts are <laughs> like where it's at. So that will be next time. As always, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Bobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha and our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. We've gotten a bunch of ratings and reviews and we are so thankful for them. So thank you if you have posted one. If you haven't, what are you waiting for? Go post a rating and review and help other people find the podcast wherever you're listening to this and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.